Crossover Appeal is a show that will sometimes have spoilers, but the hosts promise not to be jerks about it. Also, from time to time, Walt and Annie may get small details about the things they discuss incorrect, and they would like you to know that every time it happens, it is done on purpose to spite you specifically. Enjoy the show! Hey, everybody, and welcome to Crossover Appeal. I'm Walt McGough. And I'm Annie Cardi. Hi, Annie. Hi, Walt. Annie, what do we do on Crossover Appeal? On Crossover Appeal, we take two fandoms, two fictional universes, mm-hmm. um, just mash them up like they're a root vegetable. Oh, yeah. Put yeah. them into like a puree. Yeah. Make like a, like a soup out of them. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So there's like a cooking process after the mashup. Yes. Um... Well, you know, we're the cooking process. We're the oh. heat. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're bringing that heat. Yeah. <laughs> well, Annie, I've got to say I'm a little bit disappointed because I feel like usually we bring our heat to two things that are different from one another. Uh-huh. But this episode, I don't know. I feel like we're just kind of... It, it's like apples and apples. Exactly. Diff- we're swimming Slightly in, different apples. We're swimming in the same pool instead of two different ones that we wave from e- at each other from and yeah. then forced to reconcile. Anyway, yes. Annie, what are we talking about tonight? So tonight, we are crossing over Bye Bye Birdie and The Sound and the Fury. Yeah, two American classics. Yeah, I mean, you did both of them in high school, right? Exactly. So there you go. Yeah, we're, we're flashing on back. That's it. It's cra- <laughs> well, I'm very excited for one. Me too. Um, so yeah, why don't we dive right in? Annie, tell me about Bye Bye Birdie. So Bye Bye Birdie is a musical about an American teen suburban life and the pop music industry, inspired by Elvis Presley's U.S. draft notice in 1953. Um, so yeah, that was uh, a little remembered thing in yeah. musical history. It was like, hey, hey, pop culture trivia. Yeah, right. Have some history. There you go. <laughs> Uh, it, the musical first opened on Broadway in 1960 and went on to win the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1961. Um, the original cast included Dick Van Dyke and Sheeta Rivera. Oh, man. I thought they just did the movie. No. Uh, so. Oh. Um, the, this is a thing. Yeah. So um, the show had other iterations, um, like on the West End, which included Sheeta Rivera mm-hmm. on tour and then on Broadway as a revival in 2009. And of course, in my middle school in 1997. The most important revival of them of all. Of course. Starring um, you. Starring me as one of the local sweet apple teenagers. I don't know. I feel like on our walk home today, you were saying you had both a solo and multiple lines. I had, yes. Well, I had a solo in a song. It was not a solo song. Mm-hmm. And, but then I Still also counts. had line, and I had a name. Ooh. That counts. I think that makes you a featured character, a featured so. performer. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You can get more than scale for that. Yeah. I, I'm pretty much equity at this point. Mm-hmm. I think so. You've got yeah. enough points for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so, um, in addition to that, there's the 1963 movie version starring Dick Van Dyke and Anne Margaret um, as the teenager, but with Janet Lee as the character of Rose instead of Cheetah Rivera, which is real weird casting if Rose is supposed to be Latina. Oh, yeah. That's not the most obvious choice. No. I feel like they were like, we're uncomfortable having non-all-white actors in this movie. Right. And then they were like, well, the character's Latina. And the executive was like, nope, still uncomfortable. Yep, right? 
And it's like, guys, you've had Lucy and Ricky on TV married for several yeah. years at this point. Had West Side Story already happened no, at this point? Um, I don't okay. know when so that we, is, but that was later. So we were going to still sit for a long time in the white people playing Latina people No, there were Latino people in West Side Story. Yeah, but I feel like not all the sharks were. I I don't know. I know at least the main sharks were. Yeah. Well, not true. Maria. Oh, Natalie yeah. Wood. yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, but like um, Rita Moreno <laughs> oh, yeah. was in it. And I'm pretty sure the actor who played Bernardo was I think also you're right. Latino. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Janet Lee, I, I am yeah. 99% sure you are not Latina. I'm not sold, Janet. I'm sorry. Uh, Damn it, Janet. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, and there was also a 1995 TV movie starring Jason Alexander and Vanessa Williams, mm. whom I don't know if she is Latina in any way. I'm but not sure. at least she is a woman of color. Exactly. So I Get, believe it more than Janet Lee. You're getting a little closer. Exactly. Um, it was also, uh, Bye Bye Birdie was also. Previously, one of the most popular musicals for high schools to perform, really until the last 10 years. Yeah, because it's clean. It is. It's real clean. It has a big cast. Right. It has a lot of solo numbers. Yeah, and a lot of featured roles. Yeah. Like, like a lot of people who like pop up and have a few lines and are like intrinsic to the show. Right. And the thing that everybody comes to see. Exactly. When Annie is playing it. When, yeah, Annie is starring in mm-hmm. the middle school production of Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. If but- you have pictures of that, you burn them right now. Oh my gosh. Why would they have pictures of that? Well, because, I mean, there was a show that we did and... Oh, yeah, no, that's yeah, true. Yeah, they probably... There were other people in the show. It wasn't a solo yeah, show. Right? <laughs> I'm sure someone else's parents took pictures. Annie Cardi is birdie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come see my one-woman show. Mm-hmm. Um, birdie bye-bye? Bye, birdie bye. Bye, birdie bye. It's It also is a mashup with NSYNC. Yes, it's actually, um, it's a look at 1950s America, but only uses NSYNC songs. It's a a jukebox musical. And you dress like a mummy for 90% of it. Um, Excuse me, that's a Backstreet Boys. I know, as the words were leaving my mouth, I could feel it. You could say you dress like a doll, because they And you were on strings the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is just another theatrical metaphor for... 1950s America. Yes, exactly. Yes. Wake up, sheeple. Yeah. Um, so the story follows songwriter Albert Peterson, whose client Conrad Birdie is like a rock and roll star a la Elvis. Unfortunately, Conrad has been just has just been drafted into the army for Vietnam, maybe? Yeah. Like the, the time frame is a little one. Like they don't say it's set in 1950, whatever. It's like but either it's the 1950s. Korea or... Yeah, it's yeah. either Korea or Vietnam. I'm going to throw money at Vietnam. Well, you know, they didn't want it to feel dated. Yeah. It's it's real relevant. Yeah. Um, so before Conrad goes to some kind of war, um, Albert's secretary and longtime girlfriend, Rose Alvarez, suggests a big publicity stunt in which Conrad picks like one regular teen, American teen girl from his fan club to bestow one last kiss upon before he leaves for war. Mm, very chivalrous. Yeah. Well, you know, they're trying to sell him. So I have a dilemma right now. Yeah. I my first instinct is that the name Conrad Birdie is in no way as cool as Elvis Presley. So apparently, um, the character's name is a play on the name of this other musician oh. from the fifties, or I guess from the fifties ish, um, Conway Twitty. Oh yeah, who was more like a country music star, um, but he was one of Elvis's rivals. Ah, so that's where the name comes from. Okay, because because then I was going down the rabbit hole of thinking like, do I only think the name Elvis is cool because of Elvis Presley? Like it was Conrad Presley. 
would yeah. think that that was really cool. Right. And like if you had if you just had the names Conrad or Elvis, yeah. Wouldn't you pick Conrad? Who would you think was cooler? Yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm I'm rethinking a lot of things. Yeah. It's like Wesley Snipes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had to make the name work. Yeah, exactly. And Man. Um, yeah, there's that bit in 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, you, like out, of, out of the both of us, which ones do you think should be Wesley Snipes? <laughs> it's a dorky British guy. It is. Um, so anyway, Rose wants Albert to give up the music business and return to his roots as a um, an aspiring English teacher and leave behind his demanding mother in the process. But this seems like a pretty good send off to Conrad and the songwriting gig. So this is like one last job for Rose. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna break into that bank. Yeah, exactly. Make him kiss that girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, and who is chosen for Conrad's last kiss? But Kim McAfee from Sweet Apple, Ohio, oh. who has just been asked to go steady by her boyfriend Hugo Peabody. Oh no! And he almost Kim. deserved it. <laughs> Kim assures Hugo that the kiss will mean nothing, but Hugo Hugo gets jealous anyway. Because of course he because does. he's like a sixteen year old kid. Yeah. Um. Albert Rose, Conrad, and a media blitz descends on Sweet Apple for the kiss. Conrad stays with Kim's family, much to their annoyance, since he's not exactly the fine, upstanding, healthy, normal American boy he's been billed as. Oh. More like a famous jerkwad. Oh, no. Total Justin Bieber. Oh, Justin Bieber. Yeah, I, I was thinking, and I was like, oh, he doesn't seem like a Harry Styles. He doesn't mm-hmm. seem like a Justin Timberlake. And then I was like, wait a minute. You're the Biebs. He's a total Bieber. Um, and, and apparently Sweet Apple has Bieber fever. Oh, man, I am not a believer. No. Um, But Albert says the whole family will be on the Ed Sullivan show for the kiss. So they put up with Conrad. Unfortunately for Rose, Albert's mother, May, follows the group to Sweet Apple with the intention of breaking up Rose and Albert. Oh, my gosh. I think it's because she's racist. Oh, yeah. Um, And also has some serious control issues with her son. Yeah. And she just hates Janet Lee. She does. She just, just I mean, can't I guess stand that's the that movie woman. Version. <laughs> um, Rose is furious and works with Hugo to ruin the kiss by Hugo punching out Conrad on national television. At first, I really thought that it was going to say by punching out by Conrad punching out Kim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprise! <laughs> One last kick. Yeah. Oh man. Um, but no, so Conrad gets punched. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conrad dispens- decides to spend his last night in Sweet Apple with the kids in town at like the cool place to hook up. Um, Kim goes along with him, but the party ultimately gets broken up by the adults and police. Because it's a fine upstanding town. Right. Um, and Kim is like, whoa, Nellie, I did not mean for things to get this far. Oh, no. She is actually happy with Hugo and does not want to like get hooked up with by yeah. Conrad Birdie. That's fair. Up by the lake or yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. things happen, as we know from Greece. It's true. Uh, meanwhile, Albert, Albert stands up to his mother and apologizes to Rose. They get Conrad on a train out of town along with May and plan to settle down as an English teacher and his wife. Aww. So everything returns to normal in Sweet Apple. Yay, classic com- comedic structure. Exactly. Status quo is affirmed. Yes. Um, characters in this status quo, we have Albert Peterson, neurotic songwriter, trying to keep Conrad in line. Rose Alvarez, Albert's secretary and long-suffering girlfriend who wants him to give up the music business. Conrad Birdie, an Elvis-inspired music star who's kind of a douche. Kim McAfee, a teen girl who wins Conrad's last kiss before heading off to the army. Uh, Harry and Doris McAfee, Kim's conservative parents. Um, also, there's Kim's little brother, Randolph. 
Mae Peterson, Albert's mother, and guilt tripper extreme. Hugo Peabody, Kim's new boyfriend, who is not a fan of this whole Conrad thing. Ursula Merkel. Good name. Yeah, right? Speaking of names that should be cool. Exactly. Um, Kim's enthusiastic best friend. Um, Ed Sullivan, TV personality. And then a gaggle of local teens and parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, again, a lot of featured characters. Swarming a lot all of over the town. A big ensemble for your middle or high school musical cast. A lot of sweet apples. Indeed. Um, so some themes. Um, a big theme is the trapping of fame and celebrity. Albert gets caught up in the world of Conrad Birdie while Rose wants a simpler life. Um, and all the teens swoon over Conrad, who is so not a good guy. Again, Justin Bieber much. Mm-hmm. Um, even Kim's conservative family goes gaga over the idea of being on the Ann Sullivan show. Oh. Like in the in the musical, it's like a literal, it's a hymn for Sunday television or something. Ooh, that's some good where, satire. Yeah. And it's like Ed Sullivan. And it's this whole thing where it's like this religious experience for them yeah. to be on Ed Sullivan. Um, but fame and celebrity don't guarantee happiness or indicate the goodness or worth of a person. Great way to straighten that out. Exactly. Send him off to the army. Yeah, right. You're going to learn fast yeah, in just, Vietnam. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Get ready for a wake-up yeah, call, right? Conrad Birdie. Um, another theme is the generational divide. Even though the show first opened in 1960, it had a lot to say about the Depression era slash World War II generation versus the baby boomers. Uh, parents just don't understand in Sweet Apple, Ohio. Oh, they need Will Smith in there. Exactly. Um, boy, are these parents in for a rough time when they hit the real 60s. Yeah, they are not prepared oh, for boy. this. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. But since this is a wacky, wacky musical comedy, at the end, everyone ends up together and mostly happy, which leads us to the theme of 1950s suburban America as, like, normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like dropping into a 1950s sitcom with the McAfee's as the, quote, like, normal American family and Albert trying to brand Conrad as the, quote, normal American boy. Mm-hmm. And the show doesn't take too hard a look at the trappings of being normal or what it means to live in 1950s America. Um, but it just does suggest that the veneer of normalcy isn't exactly stable. Yeah. Like the town goes crazy just from this one person coming to see them. Mm-hmm. And again, Conrad, they're billing him as this like nice boy when really he's just a creepo. Right. And like I feel like it's it's um, it's one of those things where it's like a show that is written for quote unquote normal people. Yes. So it's like, hey, come like laugh gently at yourself. Right. It's but a little also it's a, be reaffirmed in your right. choices. Right. It's very winky, mm-hmm. but it's not like a John Waters movie. Right. Where it's trying to be actually subversive. Yes. It's like exactly. You, sh- you still go home feeling good about yourself because you've seen yourself reflected on right. stage. Right. And you've seen like all the you know the couples who are end up together are you know nice normal heteronormative couples. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it's it's again it's not pushing any boundaries here, but at least it has a sense of humor about itself. Yeah. Um, some things I like and think other people will like. Um, it's a real catchy soundtrack. Like I haven't listened to the songs in years, and I can still remember every single word. That's pretty They're, impressive. Yeah, like, and it's not because it was a middle school production. Like I was in the sound <laughs> of music too, and I can also and I don't think I would remember every single word. Wow, to every single song sound of music did not stick as hard as Bye Bye Birdie. No. And I mean, like, you know, you have Doe Deer. Like, I know yeah. that one. But, like, the Bye Bye Birdie songs are so freaking catchy. They're just, yeah. like, catchy 1950s pop songs. Yeah. Um, It's also, again, just a big, fun, goofy show. Like, chaos and hijinks ensue. But ultimately, everyone ends up happy. Mm-hmm. And um, it functions as a piece of 1950s nostalgia with, like, a good sense of humor about itself, um, even though it opened just outside of the 1950s in the 60s. Oh, man. 
So it was, it was right on the precipice. When yeah, it, it opened out. in 1960. Yeah. So yeah, it was like, let's take a look back at. It was kind of perfect timing because everybody was like ready to laugh at the 1950s yeah. without being furious about it yet. Exactly. Like yeah. it could take that slight step back, but it was mm-hmm. also not you know, like pushing any boundaries about like, okay, what what was the 50s really like? Right. Um, you could watch it with your parents. Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. okay. It was just like, hey, guys, let's just sing and dance for a while. Yeah. And hey, nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So, what about um, The Sound of Fury? Hey, speaking of people who just want to sing and dance right? for a while, yeah, just there's a good nothing time. wrong with that. No? <laughs> uh, the Sound of the Fury uh, is a 1929 novel by William Faulkner. It is about the faded and self destructive final years of an antebellum Southern family. Uh, it's like the Faulkner book to read if you're going to just read one. Um, I think he's great, and most of them are really great, but this is like the the platonic ideal of the Faulkner novel, uh, and it did very weird things in college to Walt's brain. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was like a, a very revel- revelatory book for me when I was getting super into voice and writing perspective and all that. I mean, it's, it's that. a really distinct, like, well-crafted book. Yeah, it's like one of those books that you read and you think, oh, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Yeah. And, like, and that and you it's... could get away with it in a way that is actually accessible. And it's... Cool. I don't know if accessible. Maybe the not the I first would. word I would choose, but yeah. it is it is parsable. Yeah, and I feel like it's it's more to me like a puzzle box. Yeah, where you're like you kind of peel unpack these layers mm-hmm. and reveal things about these characters that are like heartbreaking and yeah, is, like surprising. Is William Faulkner just the J.J. Abrams of modernist literature? So it. It's all there's the like Yacht and the, the Tapa smoke monster. Yeah, I mean, right. That's a big, big you point in the pl- yes column. Got to plug up the waterfall. And yeah, they have to go back yeah. to the old plantation house. Oh, yep. Yeah. yeah just... Bad, bad dads. Yeah. Bad dads everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, Lost was a an adaptation of The Sound and the Fury. I think that's about the point that we're hitting. Cool. Yes. Um, so let's talk about the basic synopsis to get at the hint of, hint of that. Um, as we've been alluding to, it's a hard book to synopsize uh, on account of it not only being written in four different sections that all jump uh, through time and space. Um, each section is written from the perspective of a specific character. Um, but it also, in each of those sections, attaches so closely to its central characters that their perspective and language and time and memory itself gets very convoluted and hard to follow. Um, it's written in that modernist style of trying to really attach to a stream of consciousness sensibility. And one of the things that I think makes it really impressive is he finds multiple different ways to do stream of consciousness. Um, It's not all just like, oh, I'm going to write a lot of really long, crazy run-on sentences. Um, It's that each character has a very specific grammar and language and approach um, that makes it very impenetrable at first, but as you sort of get the logic of each chapter, actually starts to be really compelling and moving. Um, In short, it focuses on four members of the Compton family, uh, three siblings. Um, There's Benji, an intellectually disabled man, uh, Quentin, his brother, who is a tortured college student, um, and James, the youngest of the three of the the excuse me, the youngest of the Compton siblings. Um, And then there's Dilsey, the matriarch of the family's black servants. Um, All of the chapters revolve in one way or another around Caddy, who is the sister of Benji, Quentin, and Jason. So there are four siblings. We get perspectives from three of them and also Dilsey, and then all of them in some way 
gravitate around Caddy, who doesn't really pop up a whole lot throughout the book. As uh, she she tends to be largely absent in yeah. the book, but it's a lot about their approaches to her. I remember seeing some, I think it was some quote from Faulkner about writing this book and how he wanted to write about Caddy and mm-hmm. like with each of these, he was trying to like get closer to her as a character. Yeah, and he, and like he, I think he, he ended up being like I never really got who like her story yeah but it was about these characters like trying to figure out who Who she she was was. and i kind of liked the idea of him being really fascinated by this character yeah and like trying to search her out through these other voices yeah it's like uh that reminds me of august wilson talked about he wrote you know this century cycle of 10 plays each set in a different decade of the 1900s in pittsburgh and there's a a character who i cannot oh i can't remember the name of she's like the grandmother figure and she's sort of this seer character who all the characters go to visit and she's um she can sort of see into the future and she has and she's she's not on stage in any of the plays except for one of the last ones that he wrote gem of the ocean which is the 1900 to 1910 play Mm -hmm. um and she is in it um and he did it that way largely because he said like he couldn't hear her Hmm. until he had written 90 years worth of other plays. Oh, that's very cool. And then all of a sudden one day he was, I think like in a, either in a diner or in a phone booth and he just heard her voice and like went out and wrote the play about her. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's that idea of like, sometimes what your characters think about a character is even more compelling or can be a way into a story. Yeah. And I think like for me, that says so much about the the writing process. And I think if you're you're not kind of a creative person in that way like it's hard to imagine like no but you write the characters like you decide what they are but it's like it's not that simple like you have to learn about them and like as if they were another person yeah like characters aren't plot you don't just think about what they do you have to think about who they are and what the most interesting way into them is like what is the the day you can write about that character that is going to tell the reader the most about that character. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just like laying all the facts of their life out there. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that, I mean, Caddy is all over the sound and the fury. She suffuses the whole book and is a really fascinating, compelling character because of it, even though we never get her perspective. Um, the perspectives we do get, uh, just a quick rundown. Um, there's Benji's chapter, which is the first chapter in the book, which is like starting out on hard mode. Um, and it is hugely elliptical and often confusing first person narrative, um, largely because of Benji's intellectual disability. Um, it tells um, through this kind of time-jumping structure about his upbringing with the Compton family, his love for Caddy, um, his traumatic treatment due to his disability by everybody around him. Um, Eventually, uh, we get hints at his having been castrated due to a perceived sexual assault. Um, He does not have a great time, um, but he is, uh, he's sort of that now it's sort of a, a pretty clear literary trope, but like the idea of the blissful innocent or the 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 innocent fool character where like he doesn't quite grasp everything that's going on. Yeah, um, I don't I feel like I don't see him as I feel like innocent is the wrong word. Yeah. Like it's he's he's very I mean, he's innocent in that like he's he's detached. Know, he like he's detached, but also like he's been neglected by other yeah. members of his family and and being an intellectually disabled person in he's like, very 1920s. marginalized. So, yeah, he's super marginalized, but mm-hmm. like he 
he has this deep love and grief for his sister. Yeah, and he ha- and he does have a fair amount of agency in the way that he tells his story. Yeah. And that. So yeah, that's a good point. I walk it back. Um, but no matter what, because of his detached perspective, um, through this kind of disjointed narrative, as you get to, as you key into his language, um, you learn a lot about the factual history of the Compton family and how the, how they have sort of disillusioned and and what happened with Caddy and all of that. Um, then we jump to the second chapter. It is Quentin's chapter. Um, it is mostly set on his final day at Harvard and of his life. Um, and he spends the day uh, wandering around the streets and fields of Cambridge and piecing together memories of trying to protect Caddy and maintain her purity. He's very hooked into and obsessed with that idea. Um, wanders through the fields and streets and eventually throws himself off of a bridge that you can still visit today. Yeah, so, so go, go see that, guys. Yeah, tourism destination. There is a plaque. Um, the third chapter follows Jason, uh, the youngest brother, as he tries to kind of hold the failing estate together, which is complicated by the fact that he's not very good at it. Um, he's very miserly. He is very kind of selfish. Um, he embezzles money that is meant for Caddy's uh, illegitimate daughter. And uh, he's just it was not... also named Quentin. Named if it... Mi- yeah, Miss Quentin. Yeah, if it is not her. confusing. <laughs> exactly. Just in case. And it's never laid out for you. You just kind of context clue your yeah. way into figuring that one out. Um, but yeah, he's just generally not particularly effective at maintaining life on this failing household. Um, and then the last chapter underlines that even more. Um, it is focused on Dilsey, um, although kind of tellingly, it's the only chapter in the book that uses a third person narrative instead of first person narrative. It's not specifically attached to her. Um, as we follow her, we get a new perspective on the day-to-day life of the Comptons in their waning years. Um, Caddy's daughter steals the family fortune and runs off, and things just kind of don't wind up great for anybody. Um, but we get a broader sense of the impact of all of the Comptons' failings on the people around them. Um, characters, I mean, it's mostly the characters that we've talked about. There's Benji. He's the first perspective we get, um, and one of the most kind of inscrutable, hard-to-crack ones. Um, there's Quentin, who is the tortured brother. He's completely obsessed with chivalry, the myth of the genteel, noble South, uh, and the, uh, the concept of time. His chapter starts off pretty standard and straightforward, but gradually gets more and more unhinged as he gets closer and closer to his suicide. Um, I always kind of picture him as Luke Wilson from the Royal Tenenbaums. I feel like that's pretty legit. Yeah, he just has a very like soulful thoughtfulness, but also kind of frustratingness about him. And yeah, it's like, oh, honey, you're real messed up. Yeah, you need like, you need some real help. You need to just go talk. And to he somebody. is a character in other novels. He is. We're gonna talk about that yeah. a little bit further down. Oh, um, there's Jason. He's mean, but someone uh, somewhat. From necessity. I mean, he's kind of been forced into the position. He was the mother's favorite and has this burden to take care of everyone. And he's just not doing a good job. No. Um, that doesn't really absolve him, though. Uh, there's Dilsey. She's just kind of focused on putting one foot in front of the other and caring for her family. Um, that said, she does feel for the Comptons and realizes that she wants them to be okay and prays for them. But she's also treated really terribly by them and is stuck with her family in a very admittedly powerless position. Um, there's Caddy, the absent protagonist, uh, the focal point of everybody else. They all want to protect her and she just kind of wants to find her way out, which according to, uh, there's a fifth section that got appended later to the book that's like an uh, a uh, almanac about the Compton family that just lays out the full history of everybody mm. in it in a very easily accessible timeline. Oh, nice. Um, and in it, um, it does lay out that Caddy does find her way out, 
very successfully and very far away to Germany, where the last oh, known no. picture of her is with a German officer. Oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, Faulkner still finds ways to complicate Hashtag matters. Hashtag bad choices. Bad choices, Caddy. Um, and then there's Luster, who's Dilsey's grandson. He is kind of charged with keeping tabs on Benji throughout the book, um, even though that really shouldn't be his job. It should be his family. Um, but yeah, those are really the only major characters that we get and we get four of their perspectives very very closely um themes and fun stuff question mark um the the theme the biggest theme of this book and of a lot of faulkner's work um is the poisonous cage of the southern mythos um faulkner does a wonderful job of capturing just how kind of stultifying and damaging it can be to live so firmly in the past um particularly when your past involves as much pain suffering cruelty and culpability as the slave south in america um Mm -hmm. the comptons are a family that cannot escape who they were because part of them never really wants to escape they want to just try to recapture it even though it doesn't exist anymore and they're all to one degree or another trying to reclaim something that never really existed in the first place. Um, another theme that I think is very clear in this in this book and in other of Faulkner's books gets a little diluted, um, but is systematic oppression. Um, there's sort of a disclaimer that, you know, Faulkner, he's very much, he's a white guy writing in the middle of the 1900s, and he is definitely writing from within the system of, like, the great white male American author. Um, but and he is the great white Southern American male exactly he is fully writing within the identities that he's he's discussing um but he's really actually wrestling with it in a lot of nuanced and tortured kind of ways um there i think the biggest example is dilsey's chapter um there are a number of reasons that dilsey's chapter is written in the in the third person and i think some of them reflect reflect really positively on faulkner i think it is him kind of admitting that he doesn't feel able or willing to claim that perspective and to try to put words in that character's mouth. Um, And then I think there's a flip side of that that is also Faulkner not entirely viewing a black character as capable of having a perspective when it came to, like, talking about this story or defining this story or having agency. Um, You know, sort of like Bye Bye Birdie, like, this book is for white people. Yeah. And it is white people talking to other white people about how problematic white people are and yeah. so there's only there are limits to how to what it can actually like say the positive the positive sides of that are it like it is seen as problematic like mm-hmm. while there is this mythos of this genteel southern family like it is ultimately destructive exactly um but it like i think faulkner is seeing it as inwardly destructive as opposed to yeah. Outwardly destructive. Yeah, it's not about the the harm, the havoc that it wreaks on the world around yeah, you. Particularly a, people, people, yeah, particularly people of color. Exactly. Um, it's very much about what it does to you and how it corrupts your soul. Yeah, so it's like, okay, this is definitely a book from the white perspective, for the white perspective. Um, about but, white history. About white history. But at least at the same time, like, I think, it, um, say, Dilsey here, she is kind of treated as full a character as these kind of white men who are given roles um, before her. Yeah, she's treated with agency. I think, yeah, ultimately, I think Faulkner knows that he's your fave and knows that he's problematic. Um, You know, and he 
he sort of wrestles with that. And I think as a person, he wrestled with that idea yeah. and with what it meant to be a Southerner in, in all respects. Yeah. Um, and then the last theme, I would say, is the power of linked universes. Uh, long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there was Yachtimpatapa County, um, which is the setting of Sound of the Fury and of most of Faulkner's other books. Um, and anybody who wants more Comptons has plenty of other works to choose from, which we'll talk about in the recommendations. Ooh. There's even a map of the county that he drew. Um, it's a totally fictional county. And I don't know, it's just kind of amazing to see a writer like creating a little playground for himself to write these incredibly oh, yeah. depressing stories with I freaking love within. linked universes. Right? They're like, so great. Yeah. Like Madeline Lingle has uh, links all over her books. Yeah. And especially um, because it shows, in, I mean, in this case, it shows all of the different ways that this Southern mythos can corrupt. Yeah, you know, all these different families are struggling with it in different ways, and you know, he gets it most of them um, in the course of writing all of his books. Yeah, so oh, yeah, well done, good job, Faulkner. Uh, but hey, let's talk about a crossover um, thematically. Where do these match up? Um, I think that sense of nostalgia, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, looking back at at history, yeah, in like a big way, in a big way, and but also not like necessarily um pushing too many boundaries against it mm -hmm. like i think faulkner certainly pushes more than bye bye birdie but again he's not kind of um taking these you know genteel southern families to task mm -hmm. for like enslaving people um yeah. but he he recognizes that the the society is a ruined one. And I think that there's an assumption in both works of a status quo. And I think for Faulkner, it's that like, it, that's a hopeless idea. It's like, this is the way things are and mm -hmm. we can't change them. Yeah. And I think for Bye Bye Birdie, it's sort of an aspirational idea of like, not aspirational, but like, this is the way the world works best when everybody just, just loves each other. And, yeah. And you know, sometimes there, sometimes people are kind of dumb about it, but. Yeah, yeah. it's it definitely idealizes like the quote simple life in yeah. no, you know central america that there's like there's you're... a foundational way to live yeah and the characters in bye bye birdie have found it and the characters in sound of the fury have not yes definitely <laughs> comedy um, versus tragedy absolutely um which means this is going to be a really interesting one to physically cross over Yes. Well, they're not too far from each other in space and time compared know. to other ones we have That is true. Over. So I had a thought on this, yeah. and it's a little high concept. Yep. But so you know the Brady Bunch movie? Yeah. How they decided to take this show that was kind of a nostalgia piece and just bring it forward into modern day in yep. order to make it like, you know, but it was still like the Bradys were in modern day. Uh, it wasn't like they were, you know, hip, cool Brady's of the 90s. They were still the same Brady's. Yes. Um, so in my reckoning, I think somebody decides to do that with Bye Bye Birdie and somebody decides to do that with Sound and the Fury of like, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to do a modern setting, for, but we're going to launch these characters into the, fu into the future, into uh -huh. modern day. And somewhere along the way, the time streams get crossed and they all wind up in the now as themselves. Okay. 
See, I had a different idea. Oh, okay. Yours is probably a little simpler. I was just going to recast Bye Bye Birdie in Yachna Patafa County. Like, oh. one last kiss. They pull a name out of a hat. <laughs> Kim McAfee of Yachna Patafa, Mississippi. I don't know. I made a lot of charts and graphs about you, how mine I mean, can work, I mean, we though. can talk about that. No, it's okay. I'll just put away the PowerPoint presentation yeah. about the time streams of all of the don't modern day reboots. Don't cross the streams. <laughs> no, I like Yachna Patafa. I like uh, I like the Comptons getting a chance at one last one last chance at love. And I and I like the idea that like maybe you know the McAfees are a you know middle class family mm-hmm. in Yakna Patafa. They yeah. are they are not old Southern money. Um, mm-hmm. They like maybe you know they own a shop. Yeah, they got a little. They got a, a general store. Yeah, what, exactly. What is the time mod? What is the time period? I think I'm at? I'm putting the timeline. Hmm. Because I w- I wanted to say, well, what timeline? Because it is different from Benji's perspective to say Dilsey's perspective. What is the time True. frame? I think the present day in Sound and the Fury is the tens or twenties. Yeah. Oh yeah. It looks like the. 1928 yeah. is the last section. Yeah. Okay. So like 20 years before Bye Bye Birdie. That's how math works. Yeah. About 20. 20 to 25 years before Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. So are we pushing Bye Bye Birdie back or are we bringing the Comptons forward? Again, we're getting to the time stream. Yeah. I think... I feel like we could push the Comptons forward and not lose much. Yeah, it depends on like how stagnated Yachna Batapa got. I feel like they could be and pretty according stagnant. According to Faulkner, yeah, stagnation is kind of the watchword. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they've lived through the Depression. Yeah, the, things probably the, didn't get easier. No, World War II. Yeah, probably like so, some folks went off on the GI Bill, but like some people had to stay home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, I think yeah. that's where we land. Yeah, because like even the pe- like a lot of I'm sure a lot of people in the county got out on the GI Bill, but like I doubt they came back. And yeah. the ones who stayed, I think you stay for life. Yeah, things are things are in rough shape. Yeah. Okay, great. So things are dire in Yachtimatapa. Yeah. But, but then there's a drawing on the radio. Right. Like this is big city, big time. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the idea of celebrity and Conrad Birdie kind of ties into the Comptons and like they were local celebrities in a way. Like yeah, they're, they they're were a big stat- deal. They were status people mm-hmm. um, who have fallen and now they see this newcomer yeah. coming in and and maybe I don't think they would feel so great about it. No, I don't think so. He's definitely a threat. Yeah. And he's a, he's from the North, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he is um, of a new generation. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of generational divide here yeah. says a lot. It's eating whatever the 1950s version of avocado toast is. Yeah, Killing right? the general store industry. Exactly. Getting yeah. um, all those man buns. Yeah, I bet he hasn't even bought a house yet. No, he, he won't even buy diamonds. <laughs> Yeah, come on, Ugh. Conrad. Um, yeah, okay. So he's coming into town. I like that. So um, bye, 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 Birdie characters are operating um, as a separate unit from the Comptons. So okay, instead of Kim McAfee maybe mm-hmm. getting drawn, what yeah. if we just recast it as Caddy? Oh man, because she wants out. That's true. I think the kiss goes. I think I think the the rendezvous at hookup point goes very differently. Oh, totally, one hundred percent. I think that's yes, absolutely. Sorry, Kim. Yeah, 
you're fine. We're going to yeah. cut you. Yeah, you're just not, you're not compelling enough for today's hip no. new story readers. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I think Caddy would see this as her way out. Absolutely, She's she like, would. This is a super big time mm-hmm. and it's the outside world coming to me. Yeah. Like. So, yeah. So then how does she, what does she think about like Albert and Rose? Um, I mean, I think, I, I think as like a young person, maybe she doesn't think too she, much she of them. She doesn't think about yeah, them, frankly. <laughs> um, I do wonder if maybe Albert would get a job at the local the Yakutawa High mean, School. These are people who need learning. Yeah, they learning. need literacy. They need schooling. They need the, they need the library open. Mm-hmm. They need like so, yeah, I think he's like literature he... to come and and sh- you know yeah. show them that um, first of all maybe your old ways were not so great. True, and there there are lots of other things, yeah. other people who can have voices. He can probably help them finally implement Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, seriously, he's, he's like okay, time to time to start Let's... the new school. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think like I think that. Rose helps him identify a need in the community, yeah. and I think he sticks around. I I agree. I kind of like yeah. that. How does Caddy affect Conrad? Um, I feel like that would be maybe one of those ruined things where, like, mm. Caddy at first sees this as her way out, and then realizes that Conrad is just as messed up as yeah. the men in her family True. in the town. And shallow. Yeah, yeah, like he's he's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. I think she she would still leave. I think yeah. that would be her impetus to like to see that there's a world out. And maybe she talks to Rose. Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe, maybe Rose, Rose is like, girl, there's New York City out there. Yeah. Maybe they do a trade in places. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Caddy <laughs> takes over the music industry. Exactly. She yeah. goes, she works her way in. Yeah. Maybe okay. Maybe Quentin gets inspired to sing. Aww. That boy needs an artistic he outlet. He needs a little something. Yeah, he's very obsessed with time. So I bet he's yeah. good at keeping rhythm. Yeah, there you go. You know, maybe he learns to be a drummer. Yeah. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah. And and he and Caddy go off on the road. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is getting almost too happy. I feel like I usually, know, right? usually we have to darken up our, our crossovers a little bit, but I feel like this one is getting a little too close to the light. I just, I want people to feel okay. I want them all to be happy. Um. Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously the American South is the birthplace of rock and roll. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe Dilsey is actually the the musician here. Yeah, okay, you know what? Maybe, like, Dilsey understands that, you know, Conrad stole all of his sound. Yeah, right. From other musicians of color. Yeah. And so, like, maybe... Maybe we're going to go a little bit into hairspray territory here, too. But, like, maybe mm. she gets some guest spots on the Ed Sullivan maybe, show yeah. lined up. So, maybe like, because... Luster shows up and, is, and is, he's, like, I think he's, like, eight in the book. But oh, yeah. he can play, he, I'm sure he can play something. He's, he's got to be bored. Yeah, right? Learning he's, to play something. Uh, we need an adorable kid who can, yeah. like, much like in hairspray. Exactly. Who can do the cute little little solo. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. He'd be so, adorable. You know, yeah. So, yeah, I think, like, like, there's some kind of coup that happens on Ed Sullivan. And, yeah, and that it would be, like... I don't. I don't even know who the first black people were who would be on Ed Sullivan. Like, when yeah. did that happen? I'm not sure. Maybe That's a very, know. very good question. Um, but yeah, I think that maybe they like maybe they Millie Vanilli or Singing in the Rain, Conrad. Um, you know, they I think expose him as a fraud. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, I know that he probably sings his own stuff. It's not like he's playing on a record. Um, Bo Diddley became the first black performer on Ed Sullivan. Oh, man. Um, I'm sorry. I'm looking up what, when that happened. No problem. I'll vamp. Yeah. So, um, on yeah. November 20th, 1955. Oh, my gosh. And it's Dilsey that did it. Yeah, Dilsey <laughs> is the real hero of this story. Absolutely, because she's um, not taking anybody's stuff And you know what, anymore. I feel like if it were, you know, like Rose is trying to figure out how to ruin Conrad's performance. Yeah. Like, I can see her being like, you know what, we're not just going to ruin Conrad's performance. We're going to bring gonna down ex- the whole system. Yeah, we're taking down the music industry. Because in this iteration, I am not white. <laughs> Yeah, right? I am definitely Latina. Yeah, absolutely. Like, screw all y'all. Yeah, we're, we're burning this system down to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then Albert hangs out and helps them rebuild it. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, Benji? Um... Oh Benji. Oh, Benji. I, I, just want I, wanted, I, I just wanted to not get put into an asylum like he does in the almanac I of the know, right? I so I'm actually gonna say I feel bad for Quentin, but like hun, you need some real issues worked yeah, out. You need some therapy. I feel like Quentin needs to go handle some therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe so Dilsey is a big music star now. Uh-huh. Um Caddy can be her manager. Sure. Um Benji, he's her assistant manager. Yeah, absolutely. Like they need help. They're yeah, they're she they're in the office in New York. Yeah. Um road manager. And, yeah, like you know. Dilsey's on Ed Sullivan. She's performing at arenas. She's making stuff happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so, so so yeah, I think that's that's Benji's job now. Yeah. Caddy can help Benji get out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um is Miss Quentin Conrad's daughter? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. Absolutely she is, rather. Um Yeah. And I feel like she um, she would be real into the 60s. Or maybe, I mean, I guess that would be the 70s yeah. by the time she's like a teen, you know, oh, early Quentin? 70s about yeah, when she's, she's a teenager. Yeah, she's super into disco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe things don't have to go so great with her. No, I think she's, no. I think she probably winds up in the me generation pretty hard. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think Caddy probably gets more into the 60s than she probably should. Oh, totally. You know, I'm not saying that things go great for everybody over the course oh, of the no. next 10 years. I but at least the show can end happily. I feel like it's it's a very Mad Men approach where it's mm-hmm. like things ultimately work out for a lot of the characters. Yeah. But there's definitely real rote speed bumps. There's a lot of people with very self-destructive tendencies exactly. in the Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without a doubt. <laughs> I actually feel like Mad Men is the crossover of these. Oh my gosh, I think you're right. Yeah. Wow, we just made Mad Men. Yeah, you're welcome, AMC. <laughs> <laughs> well, our check's in it's, the mail, It's Mad I Men, assume. but for the music industry yes. and starring ladies. True, and the Deep South. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Well, I mean, our work here is done. Yeah. I'm um, sure our check's in the mail. Do we have any? So obviously, Conrad and Caddy are kisses. Yep, they're kissing their faces. Um, Rose and Albert are perfectly stable, so I think yeah. they're fine. Does Quentin get anybody? Well, what about Ursula Merkel? <laughs> Ursula Merkel. They've got weird well, names. What if she goes to Harvard? She's oh, a she'd yeah. be at Radcliffe at that point, but like, yeah, you know what? And like, she helps him figure out yeah. his stuff. Yeah, and she's and maybe Ursula's the one who. Um, she has like her, she's a local general store daughter. Oh, yeah. Um, but she's real smart, and that's why she gets to Radcliffe. And maybe when Quentin's wandering around, instead of running into a little Italian girl who doesn't understand him, he runs into Ursula Merkel. And Ur- Ursula's like, You got to sit down, hun. Yeah. She's like, Hey, please stop looking at that watch. And then also help him understand that, like, 
you know what, you you care a whole lot about your family's background and honor and whatever. Mm-hmm. That's crap. <laughs> I'm at Radcliffe now. You got to listen to this new sound. You It'll listen. blow your mind. Yeah, right. I'm Ursula Merkel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I think I'm. I think best buddies for them. Yeah. You know, and I think they so. maybe turning maybe into your something faces more. At some point. Yeah, but he's got to earn his way back. Yeah. Uh, Battle Dome. Um, I think um, the parents fit right in in Yakdematapa. Yeah, I think um, again they're they're probably real normal Southern conservative people. Yeah. I think James and Conrad fight um, because James just fights oh, with yeah. everybody. I think um, who was I just looking at? May and um, the the elder Comptons, the parents, Mister mm, and Missus. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they would all f- fight, but because they're so alike, yes, exactly. they're very manipulative and destructive. Yeah. They're and, rivals in the town. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, no, well, May is Albert's oh, she comes mother. To town. Yeah, she comes oh, yeah. to town, and she, they're like she's the Comptons of the next town over. Well, she's the Comptons of the north. Oh right, yeah. That's Albert's mother. That's right. Yeah, but I think they they both like understand each other and don't mm-hmm. like each other because of that. <laughs> yeah. But I think they would have a not a best buddies moment, but a scene in which they're like, "We understand that our children are leaving us and are going to do way better of, than us, and are going to do better than us, and also we are angry about that." Yeah, no, they're not. They don't think they think they're better than us. Yeah. And like they say it and you and you know that they know that it's true. Yeah. But like they don't admit it. Exactly. Yeah. I feel good about this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean it's not quite as good as jumping everything into the for into the present day and having them and, all go and crazy. Brady bunching it. Just Brady bunching it. <laughs> <laughs> Instead we madbend it. Exactly. You know, any port in the storm. Um uh, no. screw you, what's your name? Matthew Weiner? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. For oh so many reasons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel quite good about this. Me too. So if people want to go onto the Bye Bye Birdie side of the tracks yeah. and get some more of that fresh, fresh content, what can they take a look at? Um, so for more 1950s slash 1960s musical fun, um, there's Grease, which is basically the slightly darker version of Bye Bye Birdie. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, lots of 1950s nostalgia and dancing plus sex yeah. in this one. Um, Hairspray, as we mentioned before, about an overweight teen in 1960s Baltimore who gets on a local dance show and fights against local racism. And I actually haven't seen the original movie by John Waters, but both the musical and the movie version of the musical are super fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dream Girls is about a all t- an um, all-girl Motown group and the ups and downs of stardom. Um, again, another one I yeah, haven't seen. Based the actual... on the Supremes, I think. Well, yeah, like very loosely. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen like a musical production of it, but the movie was real fun. Mm-hmm. Good, real good soundtrack. Um, West Side Story about rival teen gangs in early 1960s New York. A Cry Baby, which is another John Waters creation about a guy from the wrong side of tracks and the good girl he loves in the 1950s. I totally forgot about that one. I know, right? And it's it's much more subversive 1950s yeah but with still with like a real heart like absolutely it's it's a very like upbeat movie and not all john waters movies are that way no, i think it's as close to accessible as john waters oh 100 he's like this is my mass market piece yes exactly <laughs> um but it's it's still like kind of wacky and weird and mm-hmm. there's a character called hatchet face in it yeah anything with john waters yeah um for other pure musical fun and goodness, 
uh, Mamma Mia, a jukebox musical about a girl with three potential dads who invites them all to her wedding. Like really the the prototypical jukebox oh, musical. Oh, totally. And nails it. It really does. And frankly, I'm excited for the sequel to the wow. movie. Wow. Like, Bold words. It's just like a fun concept and people I enjoy and mm-hmm. singing and dancing. So what else, What am I going to lose? Yeah, I'll take that. Um, there's High School Musical, a Disney Channel original movie about the drama of high school theater and how we're all in this together. It's too close to home. Um, Legally Blonde, the, actually the musical based on the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie's great too, but uh, this the musical, I think, even stands out in some ways. Um, it's about a girl who follows her ex to Harvard Law only to prove that she's way smarter than him and way better off without him. The Wiz, a soul and Motown inspired version of The Wizard of Oz. Guys and Dolls, about gangsters and missionaries in New York City. Uh, The Music Man, about a con man who pretends to sell musical instruments to high school students. Yeah. Back when there was a budget for that. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I... I, I went to see The Music Man, mm-hmm. and I think it was at like um, Trinity Rep or something. Mm-hmm. I specifically remember being there. I have no memory of how the show ends. Wow. Like, I remember like the Mary and the Librarian song, and the song where they're on the train, sure. and there's trouble in River mm-hmm. City. I'm like, I don't know if he gets caught. I don't know how he pretends instruments happen. Funnily enough, Meteor hits the town and they all die. Oh, good. Yeah. That clears it up. They just didn't know how to wrap things up. No. Um, so for more fun in the 1950s and early 1960s, there's Rebel Without a Cause, which is the ultimate oh, yeah. 1950s teen classic about three teens who come together one night to share their angst, hope, and grief. You got to be a little more in a little more subversive of a mood, if you yeah. Than, than Bye Bye Birdie. Oh, 100. percent This is this does not end well, Mm-mm. but like it fully encapsulates that divide between generations of you know parents who just don't understand mm-hmm. and teens who um both want to kind of make their own way in the world but desperately need parental love and guidance yeah turns out he does not find a cause no well then, kind of then a meteor hits the town they all die wow yeah that's a, your your screenwriting is a plus my it's friend a very look look it's a very popular ending for that time period. exactly <laughs> well a cold war yeah there were a lot of meteors falling exactly <laughs> um mad men um about an advertising industry in the 1960s centered around a guy who's not what he appears to be again this is if you were yeah. like, man, I really love this The Sound the, of the Fury and Bye Bye Birdie. This is the perfect next Watch Mad Men. That's for you. We did it. We nailed it. Apparently, this episode was already made for <laughs> exactly. us. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's In Cold Blood, a nonfiction novel about a gruesome murder in small town Kansas in the 1950s. Um, so again, like... Very distressing. Very, oh, deeply distressing. Um, but again, this look at kind of the, quote, normalcy of small town life and mm-hmm. how that's disrupted. Um, Pleasantville, about two 1990s teen siblings who get zapped into a 1950s sitcom and cause the characters to reevaluate their pleasant existence. Um, It's delightful. It's a phenomenal movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really well done and thoughtful and surprising in so many ways. Yeah. Um, Back to the Future, about a 1980s teen who travels back in time to the 1950s where he has to make sure his parents fall in love so he can exist back in the future. Yeah. Gotta get back there. Yeah. And try not to have sex with your mom. Uh, exactly. Um, so 
while uh, meteors are falling? What should we be reading uh, in regards to Sound and yeah. Fury? Before, before one hits the town and we all die. Uh, read more stuff by Faulkner. Um, I have more from the Faulkner cinematic universe uh, if you want some yep. more of that Yagnapatapa goodness. Um, my personal favorites, I love Absalom Absalom if you can't get enough Quentin. Um, Absalom Absalom is actually, he is both a larger and smaller presence in Absalom yeah. Absalom. There's like a huge section of him at Harvard before his suicide, obviously, um, doing like family research. And it is so much about the family, but it also is a bigger window into him as a character. Um, there is Go Down Moses, if you want sort of more of the subjective remembering and dark Southern Gothic family history, uh, this time about the Snopes family from Yoknapatapa County. Uh, and then there is The Unvanquished for a collection of short stories that I find really fascinating because it reads a lot like Faulkner sat down to try to write something that was just purely nostalgic about the old South and like the, the civil war era Southern lost cause. Like it, all of the stories have the structure of like lost cause novels mm. and it, he just can't do it. Like all like this darkness keeps creeping back in and he can't sort of escape from the fatalism of it all. Um, I read a whole paper about it in college. Wink. It was probably not great, but I was very proud of it. I know. Literally, I was like, um, oh, I'm going to look up some paper I wrote about Faulkner in grad school. And I'm like, mm -mm, I don't no. think this was that great. Yeah, no. Uh, but uh, The Unvanquished uh, focuses on the Sartoris family who also intersect with the Snopes and the Comptons over the course of other books. Um, but really... I like all Faulkner. Um, I haven't read As I Lay Dying, but I've oh, read most yeah. of the other major ones. I read that and one. They're Enjoy all really, it. like, they're worth it. They're worth reading. Yeah, and they're... they're like literary puzzle boxes yeah. and again like I enjoy it and I think for books that are considered and rightfully considered very complicated um, they're very readable as well yeah. like I feel like you sort of fall into the logic of them mm -hmm. in a way that makes you feel very fancy um, and intelligent <laughs> <laughs> um, other stuff Faulkner adjacent uh, and very worth pursuing um, Flannery O'Connor's writing uh, definitely fits into that southern goth gothic vein uh, particularly A Good Man is Hard to Find her collection of short stories um, Beloved by Toni Morrison is definitely a uh, different perspective on the fatalism of and the, the sort mm -hmm. of continuing poison of Southern history and uh, systemic racism and violence uh, perpetrated on slave by slavery upon generations of people. This one very much from the black American perspective. Um, similarly, I really think the writing of Ta-Nehisi Coates has a lot of resonance with mm. Faulkner. Um, especially he has a beautiful long form article called the case for reparations that sort of uses that idea of slavery as the, as the original sin of America mm. to posit the way that it has affected um, all life, not just black life in America for the entire existence of our country. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely from the black perspective as opposed to the white Southerner perspective, but there are, are a lot of ways that uh, Coates' writing resonates with Faulkner's writing as well. Um, I have not read uh, Beloved, uh, to my shame, um, but it made me think of uh, The Color Purple as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's almost an inverse of Faulkner in that it it obviously goes into kind of the the horrors of life as a like black american woman in the south in the 1920s mm -hmm. um but ultimately ends up with 
this great empowerment. Yeah. Um, and like you are, you are not necessarily escaping this terrible past, um, but I, claiming a portion of this, this world as your own. Yeah. It's like finding a way forward. Yeah. And I think it's something that feels very necessary. I think for like moving from this totally powerless state, yeah. whereas Faulkner is all about, like you said, the inverse, the sort yeah. of decay of something that was powerful. Right. Sorry. I just got so excited. I banged my microphone. Oh, no. Um, <clears throat> Uh, there's The Known World by Edward P. Jones, uh, which is a novel about a black slave owner um, during uh, uh, the slave South. Um, that's very lyrical and uses a lot of uh, perspective, attached perspectives throughout. Um, and I really enjoyed it when I read it in college. Um, and then uh, there's Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, um, which is sort of like real narrative southern gothic um it's written by james agee with pictures by walker evans um it is basically if you've ever seen a picture from the oklahoma dust bowl in the 1930s um it was by walker evans uh the the photographs in this book are absolutely stunning and um i sat down to read the book a couple years ago and agee's writing i think i was not expecting him to be quite as modernist fueled as it is it is like aggressively stream of consciousness, um, very lyrical, very driven writing, trying and often self-acknowledgedly failing to get into the perspectives and the heads of people who were living through this um, just intense and abject poverty. Um, and yeah, I think it, it comes up against a lot of the same walls as far as uh, racial perspectives that I think Faulkner hits, but AG, I think similarly, is very aware of his ability or lack of ability to interface with the, the perspectives of the people he's trying to write about. Um, and it's just a really kind of bracingly propulsive and sad read. Um, so yeah, not like a summer afternoon kind of thing, but it's definitely it depends on how you up. how you feel in that summer afternoon. That's true. Maybe you're feeling dusty. Yeah. Um, if you want something a little bit lighter, uh, I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou has, uh, the Coen Brothers film, has a lot of fun with the kind of Southern Gothic myth ma mythos making uh, and takes a lot of air out of it as well, um, while also showing why I think it has endured as a trope. Um, and then this is a conditional recommendation because I've only read the first couple chapters, but I've really enjoyed it so far. Um, Little Big or The Fairy's Parliament by John Crowley. Um, it's technically, I think, uh, turn of the century uh, Americana sort of fairy tale fantasy magical mm, realism. That's cool. Uh, and I don't know, it has something, there's something in the language that feels, maybe it's the perspective shifts or something that feels kind of Faulknerian in a more playful sense. Um, I'm looking forward to finishing the book and maybe it'll show up on a podcast sometime later. But uh, in the meantime, if you know it, check it out and let me know whether you like it or not. But um, there, uh, you oh. had one um, on your list uh, by Virginia Woolf. And I think, oh yes, that. absolutely. I'm uh, sorry. Cause no, I was I like, let me, to, yeah. I skipped over to my list. Uh, to the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, who I think equal to Faulkner, uh, if not more so, grasps the power of perspective in narrative and really uses it to get inside of her characters' heads um, and then sometimes kill them in an offhand line, um, which is delightful. Yeah. Um, and looks at kind of the general destruction of life and familial legacies yeah yeah um so you know real feel good stuff yeah exactly <laughs> i like them both i think oh, i think yeah. for both faulkner and wolf like you love them or hate them yeah you really yeah. they click with you or they don't yeah. and i think both of them i i have very much enjoyed reading i've read way more faulkner than wolf but mm. i want to read more yeah i think 
I've read more Wolf than Faulkner, but not significantly more. Mm. Hey, English majors. Yeah, huh? right. English hey, hey. majors. Right. We <laughs> well, sure do make money. It's true. Uh, well, hey, if people want to get a deeper insight into our English major money makingness, Annie, where can they find more Crossover Appeal content? Uh, they can find all of our content, including the show notes at crossoverappealpodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, you can email us your favorite uh, English majory reads and recommendations at or just stories about reading things in yeah. your English major or not. Email us things is what I'm saying. Yeah. At crossoverappealpodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to share your favorite um, songs by like black performers that were stolen by people like Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. um, share them on Facebook. Yeah. Crossover Tell. Appeal Podcast. Yeah, right. Um, you can tweet us your favorite Mad Men gift that you think could be part of either Bye Bye Birdie or Sound and the Fury yeah. or both. You can you can make little um, uh, images with the text over it. Oh, yeah. The, some macro image yeah. macros. Uh, and you can tweet those to us at Crossover Appeal. Um, and most importantly, you can subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating re- and review because yeah. that makes us feel really good and not like the looming destruction is coming for us. Not like we're going to get hit by a meteor. Yeah, right. We're going to feel like our English majors are finally being put to good use. Yeah. <laughs> um, but most of all, you can come on back and join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, and until that time, this has been Crossover Appeal. Uh, I'm Walt McGough. I'm Annie Carty. And just like always, we are reminding you to... Please ship responsibly. Please ship responsibly.